you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It is good to be back. We had a good time, a slight time of refreshment and there in Florida. I did not want to come back to the weather. There's no place like home, but I wish I could have brought the weather with me. But it is good to be home. It is good to be back at our church and with you. We will be taking just a brief reprieve this evening from our study in a healthy church. Um, I went down there primarily to Florida. Those may, many of you know, some don't, last week, but primarily for the purpose of going to a conference at uh, the church where my best friend pastors. And we, um, we did take a few days to take some leisure while we were there, but that was the primary purpose of it. And in doing so, um, this thought was impressed upon my mind there, and I've just been encouraged by it and strengthened by it, and therefore I kind of want to pass that on to you this evening. And it is just the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is really what it is, because for, without grace... None of us would be saved. Without mercy, there'd be no hope. And without the love of God, you and I would perish. So let us look here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. It starts with the conjunction, the word and, joining back to chapter 1. And the latter part of chapter 1 is talking about the power of Jesus Christ in the resurrection. That Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. That is the difference. You have heard it said, and we have said it ourselves, but that is the difference in Christianity and all other religions. That the leaders of those religions, when they buried them, their corpse is still there. You go to the borrowed tomb of Jesus Christ, it is not there because he resurrected on the third day by his own power. How did he do that? Because he was God in the flesh. And so we see that the power of God in the resurrection. And He has promised that He would resurrect us. And so we see the power of God, the power of Christ in the resurrection in chapter 1. And He continues that thought. And He will say that we will see the power of God, not only in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but in taking dead sinners and making them alive, resurrecting them from death, spiritual death, to spiritual life in Himself. And so we can see the power of God that He resurrected Himself, but that He has taken you and I and saved us. If you're here this evening and you've truly been converted, you've truly been born again, you know what I'm talking about. There is no way on earth that you and I could be redeemed outside of Jesus Christ giving His life on our behalf. And even in doing that, if He did not quicken you and I, if He did not make us alive, if He did not save us, we couldn't have saved ourselves even if He'd have made it available. He had, all the glory goes to him because he has done the saving. So let's look here in verse number one. We'll read the first ten verses of this chapter. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation or our way of life in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind of the mind, and were 
by the <clears throat> and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, in when we were dead in, our sin, in sins, hath quickened us together by Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it here this evening to accomplish its purpose amongst your people and amongst the speaker, that you would use it to edify, to build up, that you would use it to encourage, to strengthen, that you would use it to challenge and even convict those that don't know you, that may be trusting in any other way of salvation or know that they're not saved in and of themselves now, this very moment. Our prayer would be that Today would be the day of salvation, that you would quicken them, giving them the gifts of faith and repentance, that you would show them their need of a Savior, that you would show them their hopelessness, their helplessness, and their estate outside of you, and that they would call upon the name of the Lord. And we know, according to your word, that those that shall call upon the name of the Lord shall likewise be saved, that you will in no wise cast them out. And so I pray that you would do that here this very evening, if there's one that here that doesn't know you. For those of us that do, may we be encouraged. May we not boast of anything within ourselves because we realize that we have nothing to offer. The only thing has been as said by many greater minds and mouths than this one of this evening that we have contributed to our salvation is our sin, the need of it. And so may we remember that and may we remember the great grace and mercy that you've shed there in the love of giving your son to die on the cross in our stead. I pray that you'd forgive me, Lord, of my sin, of my apathy, complacency, even procrastination and things that shouldn't be in the life of a believer. That there would be nothing hindering you from meeting here with us here this evening. I pray that you would forgive the sins of your people that we may meet with you here this evening, that we may have the power of God on display, that not just uh, for the sake of boasting or saying that God has met with us, but that we be encouraged that we would use it for your glory and honor, that we would leave here encouraged, charged up to go out into the world. And may we be careful to give you the praise and the honor that is only due you. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Man by nature is a boastful creature. We like to take credit even when others may do something. And so it is, God has saved us and has made all the necessary means for salvation outside of us. 
And so there is no boasting within us. And so those of you that know that this evening and know that well, my challenge to you would be, and to myself, is that if we are saved by grace, and we know that, and we may know that all well from the scriptures, would be that we would live by grace. Because that's the same means that saves us is the same means that we're to live by. You and I have nothing to boast about. Your health... You can do all the physical exercise. You can do all the things that correctly. But outside of the hand of God, you and I could lose our help. I'm reminded talking to Sister Shirley this morning, giving her a hug and just stating, she said it happened so fast. Our health, our life, everything we have is by the grace of God. May we not take it for granted. May we not boast upon it. Your job, you, your education, you may say, well, I put in a lot of hours of study. yes. There is study, there is work to be done, but we still are unprofitable servants. Having done all that God has commanded us, we're still considered unprofitable servants. Anything good that you and I have is by the mercy and grace of God. And may we remember that and praise Him for that. And many of you know, maybe even better than myself, but what grace simply is, it simply is undeserved favor. And we would say that mercy is not giving us what we do deserve, and grace is giving us what we do not deserve. Second Corinthians 8 9 says, For in the riches of Christ, that Christ took on sin, he became a sinner on our behalf. This is the riches of God. That for you and I, the riches of God, and became sin for you and I. And I like this definition. I don't know who's coined it, but of grace, it was very simple. It just said, it's the superior bowing to the inferior in love. And that's exactly what God did. He is the superior, we are the inferior, and He bowed to us in love. And so we see here this evening in chapter 2, we see the dead sinner and we see the disposition of the Savior. We see who we are and we see who Christ is. And that's what's necessary for salvation, and that's what's necessary for sanctification. So no matter if you're here and lost this evening, you need to see who you are, and you need to see who Christ is. And if you are here and converted, you know Jesus Christ, no matter if it's for two weeks, or two, 20 years, 50 years, we need to see who we are outside of Christ, and who Christ is, and who we are in Him. So first we see... The deadness of the sinner. He says, and you hath he quickened. That word quickened means to make alive. To, to take, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein time past ye walked according to the course of this world. Look what he says there. Wherein in time past ye walked. It's past tense. You know the problem with modern Christianity, and I say this with all due respect, this verse, if it was read accurately according to the lives of most professing Christians, wouldn't be in the past tense. He said, ye were. In times past, you walked like that. Most Christians don't walk any different than the world today. And I profess to you that it's because many of them do not know Christ. They're not Christians at all. And they may sit in the pew. And they may be good law-abiding citizens. They may be good people. 
But that's not the standard. The standard is perfection. And we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God is what Scripture tells us. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, wherein time past you walked according to the course of this world. That Greek word, I can't pronounce it. Pastor would have to do that. He does really well with pronouncing those words, and I mean that. But it has the meaning of eon or age in that course or that time there. So we see... The deadness of the sinner in our conduct or the course, that the age, the way we live by the company or the people we keep around and by our own character. He says, where in times past you walked according to the course of this world. That word course means marked out track or it's the way that is appointed to pursued you and I have a track a course of our life that is marked out outside of Christ we are limited by our nature we will only act according as that nature is it is that dead nature we will only follow those things of that nature we're confined to that course just like you run a race and they have to stay on track or on the course you and I Our course is a course that is heading to death and hell outside of Christ intervening. It is limited by our nature. He says you're dead in your trespasses and sin. What can a dead man do? Nothing. Just as a corpse is unable to do any spiritual good, you and I are unable to do anything good outside of Christ coming in and quickening us. It literally takes the Holy Spirit of God to make us alive. That's why John, they're talking to Nicodemus and he didn't understand what he was saying, but when he said, you must be born again, what he's saying is, you must be made alive. You're dead. You cannot save yourself. You must call upon the Lord and ask Him to do so. And He must act on your behalf. We are dead in our course of action, in our conduct, the way we act. You don't have to teach a child. Many, Everyone here knows that. Do we have to teach children to do bad? No. It's inherent to our nature. The course that's set out before us is a course of sin. And you look at today, the day and time we live in, sin is running rampant. Why? Because we have departed from the Word of God. We have departed from God. And the further you get away from God, the more you see it's nature, our nature revealed. It's not that mankind is worse than he has ever been, that the Word of God has been restrained and withheld because we have not proclaimed it, we have not lived by it, and therefore we're just seeing mankind reveal his true nature more so. So by our conduct, we are dead. There's nothing good we can do. But also by the company we keep or the people we hang out with, if you will. He says here, the course according to the prince and the power of the air. Who is that? That is Satan. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. All all of us outside of Christ are children of disobedience. And he goes on, verse 3. Among whom... Also, we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh. He said, among whom? We all had our conversation in time past. 
or the word conversation, way of life, way of living. We all lived that way. We were the children of disobedience. You remember Isaiah there when he got the vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, verse number 5. He says, I am a man of unclean lips amongst people with unclean lips. He realized who he was and who the people were. We choose to sin. Why do we do that? Because it's part of our nature. And that's why we, we can't help each other. We're all just alike. The, mankind is doomed within himself. We can't help one another. We have to have the actions of another on our behalf. We have to have the perfect person to come in on our behalf. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. But we are dead in our trespasses and sin by our conduct and the company we keep. But we are also dead just in our character. Look what he says here. Were by nature the children of disobedience. The children of wrath. God's wrath abides upon the wicked. But notice he says there in the latter parts of verse 3, this is really good, there's a separation here. He says, nature and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So even as others. You were like these others, but now you're not. By nature, the children of wrath, the natural character to sin. Therefore, we deserved the wrath of God. Jeremiah 17.9 talks about the heart. He says, our hearts are desperately wicked, evil above all things. Who can know it? And we are vessels and that deserve the wrath of God. We're unholy, we're helpless, and we're hopeless. We're destined for the wrath of God if something doesn't happen on our behalf. You and I, in our sins, are dead in trespasses and sin. We are destined for the wrath of God. For the wages of sin is what? Death, is what the Scripture says. And that's what we all deserve. Each and every one of us deserve death. Because of who we are at our conduct, at our character, and who the company we keep. We deserve every ounce of God's wrath. We're destined for wrath and would have been if it had not been for three little letters, if you will, allow me that. Understand there's not, not necessarily these three little letters that change it, but this verbiage changes it all right here. Verse 4, three of my favorite letters in the Bible, and I mean that. But, B-U-T, but God. You realize that the, we were the vessels and the children of wrath. We were going to suffer the wrath of God if it had not been for God. But God, he says, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. So we move from the deadness or the dead sinner to the disposition of the Savior. We're going to see who Christ is. This changes everything. This is who you were. This is what 
the consequences of those actions were. This is what you deserved. But God, who is rich in mercy and love. The two of the very attributes of God that defined who He is. He is a God of mercy and He's a God of love. You read in Psalms 136 the same refrain over and over and over. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. So we see the nature of mankind is at enmity toward God, as the Scripture says. It's against God. But we see the nature of who God is. So it can only be by grace that we're saved because of our nature and because of God's nature. As I said, mercy... Is not giving us what we it is not giving us what we do deserve, and grace has given us what we don't deserve. I want to share this with you. Brother Alva shared this little and I looked it up online and I didn't see who to attribute it to or I'd give credit to it, but I want to share this with you. I'm talking about mercy and grace. It says mercy withholds the punishment we rightly deserve. Grace not only withholds that punishment, but offers the most precious gifts instead. Mercy withholds the knife from the heart of Isaac. Grace provides a ram in the thicket. Mercy runs to forgive the prodigal son. Grace throws an extravagant party for him. Mercy bandages the wounds of the man beaten by the robbers. Grace covers the cost of his recovery. Mercy hears the cry of the thief on the cross. Grace promises paradise that very day. Mercy pays the penalty for our sin at the cross. Grace provides unsearchable riches as, as an inheritance. Mercy stops Paul on the road to Damascus. Grace calls him to be an apostle. Mercy closes the door to hell. Grace opens the door to heaven. Mercy withholds what we have earned. Grace provides the blessings that we have not earned. Do you realize how good and how great of a God that we serve this evening? How merciful, how gracious, and how loving He is? He not only is merciful, not giving us what we don't deserve. That would be great. But He gives us grace. He gives us what we do not deserve. His love. John 3.16, a familiar passage to almost all here, if not all here. For God so loved the world. When it talks about His love, we really can't comprehend the love of God. We can't even put it into words. It can't be. So that's why the Bible says, so loved. For God so loved the world. And you remember Hebrews there, chapter 2, I believe it is, when he talks about how can we escape so great of a salvation. It's Far more than we can understand. There's, as God is immeasurable, what's the scripture say of God? That he is what? That he is love. Do you know what that means? We cannot measure his love. He, God is merciful and his mercy cannot be measured. He is gracious, therefore his grace cannot be measured. If you can measure his love, you can measure God. If you can measure his mercy, you can measure God. If you can measure his grace, you can measure God. If you can measure God, he wouldn't be God. But he is infinite. And he is infinite in mercy and grace towards sinners. And that is the only thing that gives us the privilege of standing here this evening not being condemned to hell. 
And that we can stand here with a smile and rejoice and pray, and we should praise Him for that, for God is love. And Paul said there in Romans 38 and 39, what? He said, I am persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Do you realize if you're here and you truly are born again, you're a child of God, there's nothing that can separate you from that love. You can't do enough wrong to cause God to unlove you because God is immutable. He cannot change. And if He has cast His love upon you and I, He has promised never leave us nor forsake us. He won't withdraw that love. We are secure in Him. It's not in us. Nothing can separate you. Sister Shirley, death cannot separate David from the love of God if he is in Christ. He is ever present with the Lord here this evening because of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is just a passage from this life into eternity. No amount of persecution, no amount of hardships, and I don't mean to make light of any of that. But there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God if He has shed His love upon you. And that should give us a reason to be joyful. Doesn't mean we have to be happy in the circumstances, but we still should be able to find joy no matter what the circumstances are because in that God loved us while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were alienated, away from God, and He has adopted us and made us children. His mercy targets us. His love targets us. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed to us by the Scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. There is no right of boasting. There is nowhere to boast. You and I have done nothing to contribute to our salvation. Therefore, we have no reason to glory. And if God allows you and I to serve Him after salvation and do anything great, it is not that we have any right to boast. He has given us the gifts. He's given us the abilities. He's given us everything we need. And He has given us His Spirit to carry it out. So where is boasting? We should say, thank you, Lord, for using me. Thank you for allowing me to be a vessel to bring glory and honor to your name. We should be able to praise Him. All glory goes to God, not to you. not to That's the exact opposite of the culture, as Pastor mentioned this morning. How do you recognize the false teaching from the true teaching? False teaching oftentimes edifies man and glorifies man, but true teaching humbles man and glorifies God. It's not about you and I. It's all about Him. For by grace are you saved through faith that is not a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Where is boasting? What do you have that you've not been given? You and I have not been given. uh, We don't have nothing that we've not been given. We're saved by grace. Therefore, we must live by grace. And I will tell you this. This is something that bothers me. Even in some of the best people I know, they can tell you, they can take Scripture and upon Scripture and show you that we're saved by grace. And they're some of the most ungracious people the world has to offer. Let that not be said of you and I. May we be a gracious people because we don't have anything that we've not been given. May we not just realize we're saved by grace, let us live by grace. And shame on us if we don't. Our family is by grace. Our education, our job... Or call it everything we have. Our health is by job, uh, by grace. Luke 17 sin says, doing all that has been commanded, we are yet unprofitable servants. And I want to 
close with this illustration of mercy and grace, this picture of Jesus Christ and us in a real world picture, but not just in a real world picture that we can lay hold to of a story from modern day times, but from the Bible. And that is the story of Mephibosheth. It was a picture of mercy and grace. Look back with me real quick. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Second Samuel chapter 9. David was the king. And you remember, in this day and time, the only way that the king was dethroned is if he died. And oftentimes, those that were servants or followers of the previous king, they were put to death because that way the throne wouldn't be threatened. And we see here, Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul. He was Jonathan's son. And you remember, Jonathan and David were best of friends. And remember, back in 1 Samuel, or, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, or thereabouts, I don't remember exactly where it is, but David makes a covenant with Jonathan and says he's promised to do well to his household. And he follows through with that. And here we are at 2 Samuel chapter 9 and says, David said, Is there yet any left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So he says, Is there any left that I can show kindness? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called unto him, uh, him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show kind, the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, in Lodibar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Emiel from Lodibar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, what, what is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and all to his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread away at my table, always at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. 
and Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Zibah were the servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both of his feet. Do you remember, when you rewind just a little bit, how Mephibosheth became crippled? Chapter 4, verse 4, when he was about five years old, the lady was carrying him. And what happened? She failed and dropped him, and he was crippled because of that. What was she doing? She was running. She was running from her enemy. See, Mephibosheth was a descendant of Saul. They were at enmity with David. And you see, that's you and I at enmity with God. And you know what we were doing in our old nature? Running from God. And what happened in doing so? Were we not crippled? Were we not really spiritually dead because of a fall? You see the parallel here. In the fall, he was crippled. He was lame. He became hopeless. He became helpless. And he was at the mercy of the king. There was nothing he could do to defend himself. Because of this fall. But David, because of a covenant he had made with Jonathan, his father, showed mercy to him. And that's where you and I are. Because of a covenant of the Trinity there in eternity past is the only thing that keeps us from being destroyed. God, because of a covenant He has made with Himself, ordained that you and I would have eternal life. Jesus Christ him, giving Himself for that in the Spirit, making that known to us, quickening us, making us alive. And we, through the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, can set at the king's table. And what are we? We're adopted, is what the scripture tells us. Are we not sons? Imagine that. I, I can't really wrap my head around that. I really mean that. You know, Jesus Christ, and we're joint heirs. We're sons. We're brothers. Our elder brother is Jesus Christ. Just as young Mephibosheth, now, look in that text we just read. I just want to bring out one part here. Uh, Verse 6, Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come to David. See, he met this earthly king. And he didn't come in and say, Hey, you know, I did this, or I'm, my dad is, you know, Jonathan. Or no, He didn't profess anything in and of himself. He fell down in reverence. And that's what you and I will do when we get a glimpse of who God is, whether it's in salvation or after salvation. The only place we can find ourselves is prostrate at His feet, falling down in reverence. And you can read into the text here without reading into it and realize there was fear. He was afraid because do you know what was to happen of the, those people? They were to be put to death because they were a threat to the throne. And so in his mind, he's probably thinking, hey, I've probably been brought here to be put to death and I, this is it. Because notice what he says. And fell on his face and did reverence. And David said to Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not. See, we can see that he, he was afraid. David said, Don't worry, I'm not. 
He said, For I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan, thy father's sake. Do you know why God, Jesus Christ, has shown kindness to you and I? For the father's sake. Because he has ordained it to be, because he has promised it. We are the children of the promise, and God cannot lie. He finds himself from running from God, from the enemy, or what he perceived to be the enemy, to finding mercy in the person of David. And his, the last verse of that chapter says, So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both of his feet. What happens when you put your feet under a table, especially if it has like a tablecloth on it? They're hidden, aren't they? They're covered. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and I. He has covered our iniquities. He has covered our sin. He has covered our lameness. He has covered our deadness and given us life in Jesus Christ. So two points of application. We know we're saved by grace. May we not fail to show grace. We know grace, let us show grace. But David, we can learn a lesson from him here. He kept his word. Jonathan was dead. He had made this vow before Mephibosheth was born. But Jonathan's dead. He could have said, hey, Jonathan will never know. But he kept his word. It's a bad day when people that do not profess Christ's word can be trusted over a Christian. May we be people that would keep our word. No matter if anybody else sees it or no matter if anybody else will know it. Number one, God sees it. And number two, we're going to give an account to him and a testimony to uphold. And the second point of application May we show kindness to those in need. David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. And especially as Galatians 6.10 tells us, to be good to those of the household of faith. May we show kindness to everyone, but especially to the fellow believers. So we're saved by grace. May we live by grace. Tonight, I'm sure there's some here that don't know the Lord. May you cast yourself at His feet, realizing there's nothing you can do. You're hopeless, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. But if you will cast yourself at His feet, if you will repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, He has promised in no wise to cast you out to save you. May you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, may we give the glory and the honor to Him for it is due Him. And those of us that have been saved, may we leave here this evening realizing it is only by grace. And so when we deal with the people, the lost that don't match 
the lifestyle that we live that don't look like us, don't act like us, may we remember that was us and that would be us outside of the grace, mercy, and love of God. That is the only difference in the, the lost sinner and the saved sinner is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It's not you. It's not me. It is him that is the difference. And may we be merciful and be a man and a woman of our word. Pastor. Thank you, Brother Josh, for that challenging message. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Pray that you respond as the Lord so leads you. So let's all stand and sing. All the way my Savior leads me.